This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles. And for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line available at shop.bellacanvas.com, where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas. Checker, a longtime partner of my company, Social Imprints, is a sponsor of this podcast. Checker is a fair chance employer and the leading technology company in the background check industry. They're building a fairer future through technology that balances trust, safety, and fairness. A past record should not be a barrier to the pursuit of life and professional successes. Checker helps companies and candidates achieve their goals with products like Assess, Candidate Stories, and help with candidate expungements, among others. To learn more about Checker, these expungement services, or how to become a fair chance employer, go to Checker at Checker.com. Thank you, Checker. feel at peace. It was therapeutic painting this picture. I was just off in my gen little old gen world. And this is the first time I've been able to paint in a year. It's been a year since I've been locked up almost now. So just seeing a paintbrush and holding one in my hand, I didn't feel like I was in prison. I went into a different world the entire time I painted this. I felt no fear, I felt no worry, I just felt comfort. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Death by Incarceration. We're excited to share our powerful interview with Dr. Nicole Fleetwood, Professor of American Studies and Art at Rutgers University. Dr. Fleetwood is a longtime proponent of decarceration and is an abolitionist. We discuss in detail the system of mass incarceration and how it targets specific communities in the United States, as well as her book, Marking Time, Art in the Era of Mass Incarceration. Each episode this season will feature a call to action, something simple that individuals can do to change the current systems of oppression in the United States. This week, we strongly encourage each citizen to vote for candidates that make a point to push for decarceration and reform as a part of their policy platform. Please listen each week for your call to action, and thank you so much for listening. So my name is Nicole Fleetwood. I'm a professor of American Studies and Art History at Rutgers. I'm also a curator and I write for general interest um, publications as well. And for the past decade, I've been researching the visual culture of mass incarceration, looking at art made in prison, 
art made in collaboration between unincarcerated artists and incarcerated artists, and also a whole wide range of socially engaged practices by artists and activists to bring awareness to the expansiveness of the carceral state, of surveillance, of punitive governance, of the systemic anti-Black violence that's very much rooted in carcerality, the dispossession of indigenous communities, the ways in which immigrant communities and gender non-conforming people are targeted by carcerality. The transgender community not only faces higher rates of incarceration, but also higher rates of abuse once they enter the prison system. Shaheen Pasha of the Prison Journalism Project and Lisa Strawn, a trans activist recently released from San Quentin, join me now to talk about it all. So, Lisa, you transitioned as a teenager just before you entered the prison system back in the 80s. So how did you see the treatment and acceptance of trans and LGBTQ people change during the 25 years you were in prison? For me, I really don't think that there's any difference between now and then. It's it's all the same. And it's it's not necessarily how you carry yourself or what you get into or what you don't get into. It's because there are so many people that don't like trans people, don't like gay people, don't like black people. It's it's just it varies and it's a difficult life. It believe me, and living in a man's prison, it's very difficult. Up until four years ago, in 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 Department of Corrections CDCR, we had no gender affirming um, clothes or cosmetics or anything like that. And because two trans women, they sued the Department of Corrections, we were really able to actually identify as who we are. And I think that that's only right because even though you're in a man's prison, doesn't mean I'm going to act like a man, and I'm not going to change who I am in order to fit in. So I'm still gonna be female in a man's prison. And a lot of people were really furious when when this took place, when we were getting the clothing. I mean, people were like, well, why do you guys get this? And I'm like, well, if you guys stuck together, you probably have more things too. Stop bitching about things, about what we have. Women, trans women were raped, attacked, victimized in order to get the things that they have now in prison. It wasn't just like they woke up one day, well, this is what I'm gonna take on. No, they went through hell. And they're still going through that in these prisons. They still are. Thinking about how prisons and the broader systems of punitive governance target the most marginalized people and continue to, you know, produce their vulnerability or what Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says, premature death. And so that's been, you know, the heart of my research, but thinking about art's role in both documenting prisons and carcerality and also in refuting the goals of prisons, which is to render people invisible, to isolate, to separate them from everyone and everything they love. And I think art becomes this important vehicle for collaboration and for community building. And I started doing this research. As you mentioned, I went to graduate school at Stanford. And during my time at Stanford, and even before I went to Stanford, I I was involved in a lot of community-based art practices in the San Francisco Bay area, especially in the Mission District. I also worked with Southern Exposure, running their arts and education program, including a a photo workshop at McClyman's High School in West Oakland. So doing a, a whole range of collaborative projects with youth that engage art and activism. So this research definitely connects to that earlier part of my life, but more, it even goes back earlier to growing up in Southwest Ohio in a working class black community that in the 80s and 90s experienced the devastation of deindustrialization, of the closing of a lot of the steel mills and manufacturing companies that had employed them for generations. At the same time, you saw a rise in the war on drugs and just very aggressive, punitive policing that targeted, you know, my cousins, my neighbors, people I went to school with. And over the course of growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, just seeing so many of my neighbors and in a relatively small community, just being erased from the streets, just picked up, um, disappeared and many of them never to return. 
You can't be a Negro in America and not have a criminal record. Martin Luther King has been to jail. Please. James Farmer has been to jail. Why, you can't name a black man in this country who is sick and tired of the hell that he's catching who hasn't been to jail. And, you know, years later, I just really uh, started thinking about the toll of that, the, you know, the personal and the collective toll and trauma that of that on, on communities when you have your neighbors and your loved ones and your relatives literally just disappeared by policing and prisons. And so in many ways, I feel like the work is in honor of, of those people in my community who've been victim, victimized by the police. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about is that whole cycle of victim to actor to victim again. And what happens, especially when people get into prison, and you touched on something really important that was part of what I was talking about when I said I was doing some research on your projects. One of the ideas behind incarceration is to remove the humanity from people, clearly. And people can say whatever they want around, well, you know, it's punishment, it's this, it's that. But the fact of the matter is you are purposely put in a situation to have your humanity removed when you are incarcerated. And so when you give people the ability to express themselves through art, it really removes that. And maybe talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen in, you know, during the, the, the progress of your research in this project in incarcerated people that have been exposed to and then kind of taken that art and, and used it as a self-expression and an expression on the situation that many, many people find them, themselves in. And, and, you know, maybe as some sort of amends for what, you know, you're being able to reach back and help some of these targeted um, and, you know, and erased and disappeared people uh, to, to come out of that. Right. And um, I mean, there's so much in there that Kevin, that you've asked and you said, so I'll just, you know, I'll address parts of it and please do, you know, interject if there are other areas that you want me to um, discuss. But one thing that I, it's important for me to say and for you to include is that I don't think anyone, anything, any system can take people's humanity away from them. I think that systems will try to dehumanize people. And I think that is, I think the root of struggle is the refusal to be stripped of one's basic humanity, of one's being alive, of one being a sentient being, of one breathing, thinking, loving, you know, doing all the things that we take in, we excrete, we want, we touch. And so prisons do exist to try to turn people into non-people. And I think that's what where struggle arises. And I think built into the prison is the struggle. I think you're a sociologist blow up the fact that in the Negro community is the most crime, the most dope addiction, the most prostitution, the most juvenile delinquency, and the most uh, 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 mothers, unwed mothers, and this is uh, a curse in our particular society. And I was a part of that. And uh, But after becoming a, after hearing the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, I was able to uh, pull myself away from it along with hundreds of thousands of other black people in this country who were in that same trap who have also pulled themselves from it. Is it true that you have a prison record? Definitely. I was in prison for seven years. It was in prison that I first heard the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And I might add this. The prisons aren't set up to rehabilitate Negroes. They're set up to perpetuate the, the criminal tendencies of Negroes. And it was only after all of the penologists and sociologists had failed, uh, Mr. Muhammad goes into the prisons and takes men like me and others and uh, is able to straighten them out just by teaching them the truth and restoring their racial consciousness, racial pride, and racial dignity. When you hold people captive, they struggle. When you remove people from everything they know and love, they struggle, right? And we hear sometimes people talk about, you know, well, people who've given up hope inside uh, prison. And, and I fundamentally believe that as long as people are, are living and breathing, that there is 
some type of struggle, whether we see it or we understand it, it could be completely interior. That is an assertion of, of their life, of who they are, of their humanity. I just want to say that really clearly that I don't think prisons actually succeed in turning people into non-people, to, into dehumanizing people, but that they, they produce countless practices of dehumanizing. But I want to separate de- dehumanizing from actually taking people, taking away the humanity from people. Does that make sense? Yes. So the system is a system that is about dehumanizing, and that's the struggle. You know, I'll say this, that you said a whole lot that resonate with me personally as a former juvenile lifer and an artist that, and I always said it, art saved my life in prison because when I discovered art, that was the day that I started to resist the injustices the system was committing inside the prison, such as stripping naked and, you know, every time they guard get an attitude on the street. You know, I started to resist that with art. And it came to the point, and you probably know this, Nicole, that in Gratisful Prison, 16 lifers recreated what's called today the Mural Arts Project. And we managed to paint 56 murals from inside the prison. Right, yeah. All lifers, all lifers. And what that did in the prison was we took a prison that was notoriously known for violence and drugs and we converted it into an art institution Mm -hmm. to our benefit. Right. Because the people that was involved with the art project in the prison, like we was treated like kings in the jail. Like, and it was so messed up because we used to see other people go to the visiting room and got to go through this process of getting stripped naked and having your private part exposed to another man. But yet when it came to the artists, the guards would be like, get ahead, Artis, get ahead, get ahead. We know who you are, right? And I used to always tell them, nah, I'm one of them. You strip them, you got to strip me too, right? Just to make a point where don't think because I paint murals that beautify your community, right? I'm one of you. I'm not. I'm with the struggle. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the power of art. Jail cells might be the last place you'd expect to see Shakespeare or hear poetry, but the arts are making a comeback in California's prisons. The California Arts Council today announced it signed seven groups to provide art instruction in the state's correctional facilities. David, what does art do for inmates? Changes them. Of uh, Convicts basically are locked in, in a cell. It's, it's the size of your bathroom with another person. And they're locked up sometimes 23 hours per day. And you can't touch. You can't touch a convict. It's so this is like one of the only humane ways for them to express themselves. Many of them have never created things. So we've had uh, convicts who have uh, start, start to create and then they debrief. They leave their gangs because they don't, they don't want to become gang pe- people because they saw another side of life. And what is their reaction to it when they first receive this kind of instruction? I've seen a guy cry. You know, I mean, uh, he was treated poorly all of his life, and he created something, and it was... Perhaps the, the, the only time someone said that he did well, and he cried. So, David, does it lower recidivism rates oh, as yes, well? Oh, yes, yes, yes. In fact, last uh, Tuesday, two, two days ago, we had a large uh, riot of 290 uh, in, inmates, and that's at uh, Calipat, Calipatria State, and they don't have a, an arts program. Uh, people have to express themselves. And if you don't bring in theater or something for them to express themselves, they're going to be doing it in other ways. When I came home, I remember I became an Art for Justice fellow, and we all met in the restaurant in Philadelphia, and you was there, right? I remember that, yeah. Yes. We did that event at, you know, that um, symposium we did. Yes, yes. And And, I uh always tell people, like, up to that point, you was like the only professor 
that I have met that have taken an interest in art. And then I was so appreciative for the way uh, my friend Russell Cray was speaking about you. Mm-hmm. He was like, man, y'all got to meet her. She's dope. She's from Harlem. I mean, like, mm-hmm. to me, it was like, wow. Here we have somebody that appreciate the way we survive inside the penitentiary. Because it was hard as a child going into penitentiary in a prison with grown-ass men. And we were just child, right? So we had to survive. And our survival skills came through art. Right, we managed to be like a class mm-hmm. inside the prison where even the people that got in trouble used to tell other people, Don't mess with the artists, we right. need them to draw. Because when people went to solitary confinement, they reached out to the artist, Can you do a car for my son? Can you write a car? You know, so to me, art was my way of transforming my life. When you came out with the book, and I seen so many artists. That I know I cried I really did Oh that's beautiful. I was that's like damn And then to see my man Yaya Which is like my brother From another mother Right Like we went through The struggle Inside the prison Together With the guards With, with other prisoners That couldn't see The value In what we was doing Right To see him in the book I was like yes Yes You know so I know the power of art but do America know the power of art? I don't think they do mm-hmm. because what your book managed to do is what politicians should have been doing a long time ago, which is looking inside the prisons for the humanity of the people instead of putting everybody in a category where everybody committed a crime, you no good, we're not going to talk to y'all. You didn't do that. You went out there and you got some of the best artists. And when I mean some of the best artists, I don't mean that they got the best technique. I mean the best artists that capture the pain and suffering and struggle that go on behind them prison walls. That's what your book has managed to do. And when I tell people I know her, they look at me like, yeah, you know everybody. I said, I really do. I said, and that's, that's one of the sisters that when I get phone calls, from inside the prison, which is almost every day, a lot of the guys, they always ask, can you send me that book? Can you send me that book? Can you have Nicole come up to the prison and speak to the guy? I said, she probably will after the pandemic. Yeah, and I would love to. And and we do have some more copies because you I know you know this, Suave, we got, we have, we were able to get a special edition of a paperback to make sure they went into prisons. Right, and, and I bought a couple of copies, but I'm definitely going to get a couple of more papers. Okay, so yeah, let me know if you know of people who want to receive them. We can t- we can tell me offline so I can get the addresses to the press to make sure they're yes. Out. But but I, I just want you to know, man, that that you caught humanity at its best. You know, when you put art there up in that show that was done with request slips and paper slip and passes and I painted with coffee before. You know, I've done pictures with coffee, with sand. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I've seen some incredible works with coffee. So, like, you're right. The call, I mean, some of them are really incredible, right? People, yes. people just don't know what's even possible within such otherwise horrible, austere, just depressing but, conditions that people create a new world for themselves. But most of all, I appreciate that your book has managed to bring people that otherwise would not listen to the issue into the conversation. And that's the important of your book. Like, there's a lot of people that don't want to hear the politics of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. To them, it don't exist. People, everybody in prison deserves to be in prison. Yes. But I have spoken to people that have read your book. And they was like, wow, there's a lot of great talent in prison. Oh my God, I didn't know this happened. And I'm looking at them like, okay, if it took an art book to do that, let's have that conversation now. 
I spent several hours at Pelican Bay. I heard about one of the programs the prison offers, a podcast, which intrigued me. After speaking with officials at the prison, they say these programs have actually reduced violence there. So here's one of the stories I took away from my trip to Pelican Bay State Prison. When you live in a hopeless life, you just don't care. Hundreds of inmates hoping for that second chance. It's not anything positive to be in prison like we're here because of the choices we made level four inmates are in their cell 22 and a half hours a day it's all cement the inmates allowed six cubic feet others have the luxury of the outside some have a view through a window over time i say from the time i was 17 in here to now i'll be 31 next tuesday it's a completely different state of mind. It's like, man, I don't even want to do that no more. I don't want to see no violence. The idea of freedom for these men can be electrifying, but freedom could bring new challenges. A lot of the inmates that are in are going to be on the outside one day. And with them being on the outside, they need to be able to understand how to act on the outside, not just lock them up and throw away the key. So the prison offers a plethora of programs for inmates to work toward rehabilitation. Programs play a big part in the programs play a big part in because it gives you a, a more of an incentive to work toward something to where we have an incentive now to work toward rehabilitating ourselves. Some light at the end of the time. Exactly. One of the programs is an audio journalism class funded by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. But to get access to these guys and their stories. Instructor Paul Critz brings inmates an outlet to use their voice. Story, outsider narrative, here's somebody on the fringes of society, all that, all those assumptions, all the blah, blah, blah. What was, I came in the first day and was presented with something really unique. The prison now has their own podcast called Pelican Bay Unlocked, a group of 15 men who call themselves the men in blue, a color they wear every day. The podcast's purpose to give other inmates hope. Somebody asked me, why am I doing this program? I have an LWAP. I have no chance to do it on What's an LWAP? Uh, life without possibility of parole. So they were like, why do you do this? And it's like, you don't have, you don't have no hope. You ain't, you're not going to go home or whatever, right? And I said, well, that doesn't mean I can't live a more, purpose, uh, live a more purposeful life in prison. I, I just want to thank you for, that, for, for putting such a masterpiece out into the world. Because I always tell people, art bring people together. Art could push that needle, right, and start that conversation. And that's what your book has done. It has started a conversation that I hope go on for decades. Thank you for those. I mean, thank you, Swami. That's like the best endorsement I've ever heard for the book. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I really, truly appreciate that. And I, you know, one of my regrets is that you and I didn't meet earlier because you should be in the book too. So if there's a marking time number two, we'll have to make sure there's an interview with you inside of it. Because by the time you, you time I met you, I was already done pretty much with the writing of it. So be, believe it or not, uh-huh. I am in the book. Yaya did Yaya done a piece. Uh-huh. I don't know if you see the piece where he had all the faces of juvenile lifers. Yes, it's in the museum. That is, yeah, I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're in, and you work with him on that. He, he, your name is on. Uh, yes, in the yes, <laughs> yes. So, 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 you know, and sometimes you don't have to be involved in everything, right? Mm-hmm. As an artist, I feel like that book represents me. I love to the thank fullest. you for saying that. So, so to me, it's like, you know, I like to see my brothers win. I like to see Russell Crave win. Mm-hmm. I remember you told him one time at the African American Museum, like he credited you for managing his money. Mm-hmm. I remember that, <laughs> and I was like, "Damn, how awesome that is!" Right? Because a, a lot of us come home and we don't know how to manage money. Yeah, uh, Russell and I've had. Many conversations about the importance of financial literacy, you know. Yes, we get caught up with the hype. We, I've done it before. We get caught up with, I want Gucci and Louis Vuitton and, you know, not knowing that you don't even have enough to pay your rent. Why is you wearing a Gucci belt when you can't even pay your rent, mm-hmm. right? And so when I heard that, I was like, wow, this is more than art. To me, I saw humanity at its best. When, when I heard you say that to him... In public, I was like, wow, this is what it's all about. To surround yourself with people 
that know where you've been at and are willing to build you up mm-hmm. and see you do good. And you one of them persons. You one of my favorites, yeah. you know. And when I told Yaya you was coming on the show, he was like, oh, for real? I was like, yes. He was like, good. Because he always told me, you got to get Nicole on the show. You got to get on the show. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, it's amazing. I mean, you know that. You, you all... That's my art teacher. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm not afraid to say it to the world, to the millions of people that's going to be hearing this. I was inspired to paint by a younger brother that's like my brother. And we was like glue in the jail. You mess with him, you mess with me, vice versa. And that brother managed to keep me out of a lot of trouble with art. And he always told me, don't try to be like me. Find your voice through art. Right. And when the book came out, when he got his copy, I remember he he's like, yo, I'm going to share it with you. I was like, eh, I got one already. <laughs> like, you know, I know people in the mural art, so I got one. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, that book is about humanity. It's it, it, it might be some beautiful work in there, but it's about humanity, how these brothers survive in the prisons. Mm-hmm. And the people need to know that. Not everybody to go to prison is bad. Not everybody to go to prison don't have talent. A lot of us make mistakes and we pay for it daily with our lives, especially the juveniles. Yeah. I mean, basically, especially with juvenile lifers and with life without parole for someone, you know, which we know is now unconstitutional for people under the age, you know, for minors, but it really is that whole system of, of treating youth targeting youth for all the failures of society right it's like placing all of society's failures the lack of support systems the ways in which poverty is structured so that intergenerationally people cannot survive they can't thrive they're literally just getting by right all of that is creating a system that's reproducing itself. And then, especially in the 80s and 90s, the people who were targeted with all those failures were the people who needed the most support. And these were largely young Black and Latinx boys and girls who were completely already under-resourced. The school system had failed them. I mean, just so many multiple ways that people had been failed and set up from day one to be criminalized, to be brutalized, to have suffered from all forms of abuse before they even get into the hands of the police officers. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And you know what? Um, I'm one of them kids that the system failed because I was told all my life that I was mentally retarded, that I would never learn how to read and write, that I would never amount to nothing. And here I am, I go to prison at a young age and I found art and I failed in everything I tried in life before prison. I tried selling drugs, I failed because I got locked up. I tried being a gangster, I failed because I got locked up. The only thing that I was, that I thought I was good was art. That was the only thing that I haven't failed yet because I had great people around me telling me, you know what? Your art speak the truth. Don't be like me. 
Because I used to always try to be like real technical. I was like, no, that's not true. Just create it. And I tell the people, you never know. You never know. And when I created art, I didn't create art because I wanted to. I created art because I had to. Because you had to. Because I had to. And you, so, know, I mean, you just said something that to me, I feel like is the power of like, if I did, if I learned one thing from this working on this book is that art is not, you know, people say art is a luxury. No, art is a necessity. Yes. People have to make art, especially people in conditions like help people being held in prisons, right? And you also said something that else that was really powerful. I remember writing in the introduction and just talking to, you know, a lot of your friends like Russell and Yaya and also Jared Owens and the idea that what society had that had thrown people away and told them there were a failure and using that idea of being a social failure to take all kinds of artistic risks because you've already been labeled quote a failure then it's like you you may as well risk it all in the service of making art yes. right like or at you, the table yeah you may as well just totally bury your soul just take the biggest risk possible because what, I mean, what else is there to like? What's going to happen? You're already in prison, right? And, and so, you know, so, you, so you may as well take as many chances as you can to create and to beautify and to express who you are. I used to say to the to the officers there that. Uh, it's a wonder they hadn't have charged me for escape. And when I actually mentioned that word escape, you know, they kind of looked at me strange and said, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, every time when I lift the, pick the brush up and start painting and that, I'm, I'm not here anymore. I'm not, I'm not in the jail. I'm, I'm actually in there, you know, down the river and, and fishing and, and, and hunting and, and doing all those good things. So it was an escape. Confined is an exhibition showing not only art, but rehabilitation and reform. It's quite unusual. Most of the works have been made within the prison environment, either in a prison cell or within the educational room in a prison. The Torch works with Aboriginal inmates at prisons across Victoria, helping them to reconnect with their culture through art. So Ray, tell me about what um, being in The Torch has meant to you. Um, it's, it's, it's absolutely put me on the path to um, a better life. Um, being through the program and being on the other side and, and seeing how things are ran and just the support that you get from Kent and everyone else that's part of the TORCH program. It's, it's just, my future's only going to be a lot better. It's gonna... Raymond Young's future is already looking good. He's an award-winning ceramicist with work purchased by the National Gallery of Victoria. You know, these, these are my markings from my, from my mob in Gippsland, the Gunai people, and um, they represent uh, four clans in the area that I'm related to. As well as connecting to country, there are more practical considerations too. The torch was launched as a pilot program, and an external assessment deemed it a success at reducing rates of reoffending. Artists have come out of the program, long-term offenders, one fellow in particular said to me, you know what, everybody looks at me and says to me, you're the artist, aren't you, brother? I love those paintings of yours. He said, everyone just used to look at me and, and you know, there's, there's the fellow who's always in trouble, that's the fellow and the uncle who's always in jail. And for the first time, prisoners taking part in the program are allowed to sell their work from behind bars. Aboriginal prisoners taking part in the program will receive a portion of the money straight away, while the majority will be held in trust until their release. Interest earned on the trust accounts will be paid to victim support groups. They can earn sufficient income to be independent so they don't reoffend. And the sad thing about the Indigenous community here in Victoria is over 50% reoffend. Now we're seeing with this program already, there's only been one or two who have reoffended. What we was able to do with art was educate the community on what was going on in the present. At that time, 
um, the prisons in Pennsylvania had stopped the media from coming in. So there was no media going into the prison. Nobody knew what was going on. Yeah. Pennsylvania has one of the worst systems. Pennsylvania has just terrible prisons, right? I mean, you yes. when you're being compared to Louisiana, you know, uh, you know, there's something in terms of like prisons, right? Like yes. juvenile life. It was bad. It, it's just and, bad. Antiquated, yeah. bad. So they stopped the media. But the only thing that we was able to send out the prison, guess what it was? Art. It was art. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it, and, and having that great relationship with Mira Arts during that time, it definitely helped facilitate. Absolutely. That. Yeah. So so we was putting our message in art. We was putting brutality, uh, uh, institutional racism, uh, 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 sexual assaults that was taking place in the prison from guards to inmates and you know we was putting all that in art and the prison wasn't even hip to it yeah. they only became hit to it when other prisoners start talking about you, you see what it, you see what they're doing they you see oh my god so then they yeah, try so to censor it was under the radar right like they just yeah so then they try to censor what kind of art we was able to put mm -hmm. but it was too late by now because by now we had the mural arts yeah and for those out. that don't know the mural arts is a program that we started in SCI gratis for 18, almost 20 years ago, 17 lifers. And we decided since you don't want to let us talk to the media, we're going to do murals for the city of Philadelphia. And through the mural arts, we raised millions of dollars in grants for these, for these murals. Yeah, you really did. I mean, like mural arts know that they're in so, in so much, so many ways they're totally, I mean, they wouldn't be what they are without the work that y'all, the labor and creative vision. They probably won't acknowledge it in public, but I will, that we put our life in the line for, for the murals. And we created some of the best murals that the city has right now. People probably walked through the murals, don't know that they came from inside a prison. Lifers, lifers. And I always tell people when I see the murals now, you know who did that mural? All the mirror arts know we did. They were like, for real? Yes, we did. Because to me, you know, that's like my resume in the art world. That's yeah, my resume. It, it absolutely it, is. And 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 it if you really think about it, it's those works get seen by a bigger public than most artists ever get as an audience. Like yes. you, you know, your work gets seen by thousands and thousands of people daily passing through this, the streets of, of, of Philadelphia. Yes. You know, and now it, we, and now with your book, I think that people understand that, especially with Yaya. And I, and I say Yaya because Yaya became the first juvenile lifer to have an art and residency at a district attorney's office. Right. Yeah. It's huge. As an artist, you know, think about that people. That's like, a juvenile life is after 28 years mm -hmm. coming back home and six months later he's working at a district attorney's office yes. creating art after 27 years in prison right creating art you know like the same artistic skills that got him through all the pain in prison is now being used to educate prosecutors across the country how amazing is that? Thanks I mean, saying that you can't buy this kind of stuff. This is real, you know. And then to know that he played a big part in my transformation because I'm a little hothead, and every time I am, and I believe and it, <laughs> and I'm passionate about what I do. So when we did art together, it was always about find yourself, find your voice, let it out in the art. Let the art speak. And that's how we challenge ourselves. And that's what I bring to the table today. Like, I'm passionate about something. I'm going all the way. Like, that's my survival. And I want the world to know that there is a book out there now that would take you inside the belly of the beast and how art is created inside. Thank you so much, Swabe. I'm so curious. What are you, are you making art right now? I know you have so much going on with the podcast and your collaborations. Yes, I do a lot of art. I'm signed with a gallery. 
Malton Contemporary Art Gallery. And I'm doing a lot of art. I'm preparing for my first gallery show. Is it going to be in which, Philly? Yes. So what? I'm I'm definitely inviting you. What's the name and, of um, the gallery? Can you just shout it out? Yeah, Morton Contemporary Art Gallery. Okay, okay. And so, uh, is that going to be this year? Hopefully, yes. And, you know, um, I, I, I would love it. You know, we should do an artist talk when you when your show opens. Absolutely. I, what I do, I connect you with the art people mm-hmm. just to make sure that they know who you are and have your book already. But my thing is to bring, I'm going to include a lot of the pieces that was made inside. Right. I'm also going to include like pieces that I've done after because the subject has changed mm-hmm. a little bit, not a whole lot. Um, but I also want to include other people that are still inside. Because we could never forget about that voice We could never forget about the voice It's not even about me no more Because mm-hmm. I'm home I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat free mm-hmm. Not all the way because I'm on lifetime parole right, right. But I'm somewhat like, free like, so. Yeah, yeah, right like, yes, so, like, so, How many people come home and then they still dealing with that So my mission is to really help Other brothers come home you know. But I got one question for you mm-hmm. And I'm sure Kevin got another question Um what did you think about lifetime parole for juvenile lifers that the Supreme Court already deemed unconstitutional to put in jail for the rest of their life? What did you think on that? Yeah, and 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 you and I both know the one of the sickest. I mean, first of all, it's cruel and unusual unusual punishment. Period. I think it's horrible, and I think it's it just shows how vicious anti-human our prison system is is that we would even create that as a sentence you know the u.s is one of the most punitive places in terms of um, nations right in terms of doling out prison sentences to people we have some of the longest and harshest prison sentences on the planet for think about this for policymakers to even be able to rationalize the idea of one locking a 14 year old up as an adult that in itself is so sick to me it's beyond unethical it is like literally a death machine and then to on top of that say that people under the age of 18 should be locked up for life without parole without the possibility of ever being released is again beyond sick. It's a death machine. This, these are systems that are literally meant to capture and kill. And these are slow deaths that they're basically doling out to people. And I think what's even sicker on top of that is once you know this to be true, once the Supreme Court ruled that unconstitutional life without parole for you know people um, who are minor, you you have states like Pennsylvania that continue to fight to keep people in prison with that sentence. They literally were fighting, they they fighting tooth and nail to keep people suffering under this torturous sentence. Yes. So what's the logic of that? And we, and those are, that's talk about where our money is going. Our money is going to support politicians who are supporting basically death machines targeted at specific populations. 100%. Yes. That's actually leads to one of the things that I wanted to talk about because I think we've got a big, and I'm guilty of this and that's why I'm so aware of it now. I've been working from this idea of like the backside of incarceration, people coming out, how do I help them? Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter are we're setting people up for failure from the start in investment in the arts specifically, because we know that the arts, no matter what it is, whether it's poetry, painting, music, and that's why dictators go after artists so quickly, right? When there's a new dictator in town, who do they go after? You know, guitar players end up with no hands, right? (laughs) Or in prison, Mm -hmm. they get their, Mm -hmm. all of their materials taken from them. I was in Sing Sing Correctional Facility. I'm working out. And one of the guys, he says, listen, um, we're we're talking about putting together a theater program. I looked at him like, theater? We are in a maximum security facility. 
and you want me to run around in tights talking about to be or not to be? I said, bro, stop playing with me. <laughs> At first, I was a little skeptical about it because they was asking me to do things that I wasn't comfortable doing, like taking the mask off my face, you know, and being me. I presented that hard front. So, no, nah, I don't want to walk around acting silly. And I think everybody else is doing it. It's foolishness. And then one day I found myself acting silly and enjoying it. I remember first seeing a production in a chapel inside of Sing Sing Correctional Facility. I'm confused. How would you know where the men's metaphor was if it's not in this book? As I'm sitting there, I'm starting to recognize people. I said, hold on, I see this guy in the gym. I see this guy in the yard. These are prisoners up here. I said to myself that I have to be a part of this program. Did you assault Santiago with the intent of killing him? No, sir. When they said that I'm in their program, I literally started crying because I'm like, I think that this is going to save my life. How do we as a society start to heal that? You know, and I know that it's a resource question. But it's also a question for our communities and, and how do we really get in there and start mentoring some of these youth into programs where they can express themselves and get all this trauma out because it's in their DNA at this point. Right. Well, and Kevin, I am an abolitionist and, I, you know, sometimes people think that that's like a very abstract, like unrealistic concept, but really it is about building safe, healthy communities that are resourced, that have institutions that actually support the viability of life. Not the not not that are reproducing death and scarcity and suffering and poor health outcomes, which is what we're currently living in when you think about what we call quote public housing that you know we know are often rodent infested places with all kinds of ills that the state literally is allowing to continue to exist in ways that harm not only individuals, but family structures, communities that just create more and more networks of precarity, right? These are systems that are creating more and more precarity and you have people who are surviving and creating mutual aid societies and doing all kinds of things to support, to create support within. I don't think the blame is on, I don't think the focus is just on like creating a program so that quote, kids can get out trauma. I think the trauma is systemic. It's a system that is targeted viciously at harming people. I mean, you can't you can't look at the video of George Floyd's murder and think, oh, only if George Floyd had had more exposure to art programs. No, that's about a vicious system that like no matter where he was, the system is looking for him and targeting him. And so I absolutely believe that it is about the transformation of society and systems that are set up to literally target, kill, incapacitate, reproduce all kinds of harm and vulnerability. I mean, think about what happened in Atlanta, right? And so even, you know, I have had friends who've said, we need to recognize when, when we find ourselves in horrific moments publicly around very vulnerable people being targeted by white vicious violence. We need to call it what it is. So people are saying we need to stop saying that it's not it's not stop Asian hate. It's stop white terrorism. Stop white domestic terrorism. Stop police forces forces that are set up to go into neighborhoods of color and treat people like they're at they're at war against them. That those are the things we need to stop. You know what's crazy? That, and I was just having this conversation today, that I, I'm hearing in the media that they're trying to say this guy had a bad day. He had a sex it's addiction. It's ridiculous. But what, I wonder if that was a black man or a brown face, would that same person had a bad day or an addiction? No, yeah. no. 
Let's, he would have been proud like, of a monster. He immediately labeled a monster. It's like you said. Let's stop sugarcoating what it is. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Some of these institutions are run by people, mostly white people, that have this mentality that I'm going to run this stuff the way I want it because your life don't mean nothing to me. And this is the way these institutions are run. And they're, and they're run that way. And I have to say, it's also not just about people. You can put a quote, good person in a, uh, you can make a quote, good person, a, a corrections officer. Guess what? The system is still terrible. Yes. It's still a because terrible, vicious system that's set up to. To fail and to, and to abuse his power. And I'll be the first one. This is not an indictment on every correctional officer or every cop because my brother is a cop. Yeah. It's about institutions to me. It's 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 about the institution. Like I always said, I was in an institution where the superintendents were liberal. They they allow us to do art in the jail. But the the staff in the jail was like, y'all giving these inmates special privileges of painting? (laughs) Are you seeing what they're painting? Oh my God, they're sending hidden messages out. So they would tamper with our artwork. They would try to take our artwork out the cell and confiscate it. They would stop us from from sending artwork out or hold on to it for a long period of time if you're doing art shows. Mm-hmm. You know, and I say to that, you could stop a piece of artwork, but you can't stop my creativity. Right, right. And that's, that's a brilliant distinction to make there. Brilliant distinction. You know, I, we always said as artists inside the institution, we own our own humanity. Right. You can't break us. If anything, we could break you because we could paint you in a bad light. And I used to always tell the guard, you don't want me to make a portrait of you. <laughs> because it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be flattering It's not going to be right? pretty. And then if it falls in the hands of Nicole, it might end up in a book. <laughs> so be careful, right? And believe it or not, artists in any institutions mm-hmm. are probably the most dangerous fear inmates by the administration mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's a fact mm-hmm. that is like when it comes to artists and we used to always make the comparison but of the revolutions that took place in different parts of the country right when artists was locked up we used to always compare that right. and we used to always tell the guys be careful what you paint be careful what you paint if you're not ready to suffer the consequences right no I, because, I appreciate you saying that absolutely no it's it's the truth you know, there was plenty of times when I had pieces confiscated or they do shutdowns and, and oh, this is contraband because you use uh, requests and, and and material from the state. So it's considered contraband. We always had to do work and hide our work around the yeah. institution. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was like Mandela when he was writing his manuscript in the prison where he had to hide it different places. For a lot of us doing art, it was like that. Yeah, yeah. Especially if it was real political work. Mm-hmm. We had to hide it, sneak it out, or pay somebody else to mail it out for us. Yeah. Kevin, any questions, Kevin? I mean, I just heard a lot from the two of you, and specifically, Nicole, the idea of dismantling white supremacy. And for those that don't think it exists, I really need to make this point because I think it's really important. You already covered Atlanta, but let's look at Miami Beach. Can you imagine if a bunch of black and brown kids yeah. were in Miami Beach rioting? That's true. For spring break, it's absolutely what true. would be happening right now? I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? I think America must see riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. So that uh, I would say that every summer, we are going to have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. 
I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter uh, as we have been this summer. Let's be honest. Can you can anyone imagine what would have happened if a bunch of black and brown people would have stormed the Capitol? They all would have gotten conspiracy charges based on the death of that police officer and beheaded to life without parole. An event led by people of color, it would be a very different thing, right? Yes. A black lives. Yeah. Yep. And so I just want to point those two facts out because we watched as Black Lives Matter did protests all last summer, you know, and made it into demons by the media. And yet when people, white kids protest the firing of a man like Joe Paterno in Pennsylvania and riot, a man that covered for a child molester, that's just considered kids acting up and being misunderstood. But if a bunch of black kids did that in the same town, I guarantee you there would be a police slaughter. So, you know, I I just want to make sure that we're making these points very clear. Someone that has made that mistake in the Mm -hmm. past as a white person to not understand what dismantling white supremacy really means. And I want to thank you for making that point. And as I mentioned, and Suave just verified, you know, the dictators go after the artists. And the fact that you're bringing such an amazing, shining such a light on these talents and these human beings is truly remarkable. Nicole and I just you know I personally want to thank you I, I ordered your book right before this show and I'm glad that MoMA links the independent right. booksellers yes, to, very important, right? to the to the buy now feature rather than Amazon it's amazing but maybe just really quickly before we close you know maybe mm-hmm. Suave and I are going to have a little piece at the beginning of every show that's basically Suave's action items what can we do you know just simple maybe one thing that we can do to support artists in prison to make sure that we're getting their their work out and that that's a fantastic question and there's so many things i could say around that but i think it's incredibly important for people to support but to do things twinfold which is support decarceration efforts in their local communities in terms of who they're electing into positions of power, because it does matter who's running a police force, who's the prosecutor, who's doing these works, who's doing this kind of policing, right? And sentencing in their local communities. And at the same time, recognizing that you can work on decarceration efforts and also have your hands involved in creating conditions inside prison that allows for people to have access to education, to arts programming, to good public health, especially in a moment where we know many of the hotspots, COVID hotspots over the past year have been in prisons, right? So it's also being active in organizations and you know a lot of nonprofits um, that are doing work locally to look out for populations of people who have been rendered invisible. And these are prisons, jails, detention centers, shelters, juvenile facilities, foster care homes. All of these are structures that are, to me, broadly under the umbrella of what we call punitive governance. I'm not just talking about prisons and jails. I'm also talking about foster care centers. I'm also talking about shelters and detention centers and all these structures where people are, we talk about congregate housing. Congregate housing often are people, some of the most vulnerable people who are not living, who who don't have the option to live in single family homes that they own with a group of people that they call their loved ones. And that's many millions of people across this country. So Nicole, I just want to thank you before you leave for allowing artists to express their humanity and your platform and for giving them a voice and a platform. That is important to me because I've been there, done that, and I know how important it is to have a voice, even if it's through art. So thank you very much for your time. And we here to support you, your work, and whatever else you got coming. Thanks, Harvey. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And you and I, yes, to to more collaboration and conversation, okay? Absolutely, absolutely. And if you know any case of anyone, an artist or not, in prison that needs to be highlighted, 
let us know because that's that's what we got this show for okay. to make sure that people in the inside have a voice. So you, if you feel like I know an artist that needs to be highlighted or he need to get some some attention or some help, maybe we could help. Maybe we could reach out through our network of people and get that person some help. Thank you so much, and Kevin, it was a, it was a pleasure to meet you as well. Pleasure to meet both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Next week, Suave and Kevin talk to Robert Salim Holbrook, director of the Abolitionist Law Center. At the age of 16, I was arrested for being a lookout to a drug-related homicide in my neighborhood. He tells us about life in a men's prison as a child, spending time in supermax, and the problem with felony murder sentencing. I could probably write a whole book about my experiences going upstate 17 years old. All of the empathy that I had for other people, consideration, you had to remove that because it was about survival. This gripping interview is just one example of how the U.S. criminal justice system ignores brain development science in favor of punishment. I think the people should understand that we're not talking about Celine or Suave. We're talking about your grandkid, your nephew, your son, your daughter. Today is me, but tomorrow could be you. Because we have a system that is based on perpetual punishment, all of our analysis is driven by emotion, vengeance, politics. Fear. Brought to you by Crawlspace Media, Suave Gonzalez, and Kevin McCracken. Please listen, follow, and subscribe to Death by Incarceration wherever you get your podcasts. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.